right, are you ready? Yeah. Great. One, two, three, four. All right, go for it. Hi, Vox. Hi, Voxology. Hi, Voxology. This is Seth. And where are we today? Uh, uh, we are at Vigrant, Tennessee. We're in Tennessee. And then we are in Nate, Hannah, and Miss Dana. Yep, Nate and Hannah and Hannah's friend Ellis and Justina are all here. Yeah. Yep, we're very it's a happy. full house. Uh, Seth has done Miss Reese's house. Yep, Seth has all done Miss Lindsay's house. Excellent. Anything else you want to let the world know? Um, and Nora and Titus have dance, dance party. Nora and Titus, you had a dance party with them yesterday. That's right. Were you shaking your booty, perhaps? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was Seth, some definite what's booty what's your shaking. favorite dance song? What's your favorite song to get down to? Ooh, what do you um, think? Shake, shake, shake your booty. Yeah, shake, shake, shake. Shake, Ooh, shake, shake, shake your booty, shake <laughs> your booty. Let the and record show that Mr. Seth is, is, ha- is shaking right now. Awesome, buddy. Yeah. All right, well, let's start this show, baby. Ooh. Tim, cue the music. Right, everybody welcome to voxology podcast you know what it's all downhill from seth let's just be honest <laughs> today what we are going to do is we're going to start a loose uh, a loosely connected series of episodes on the bible uh we got a boatload we've accumulated a boatload of questions over the last several months and then timothy went fishing for questions over the last several months. And so um, we're, we're gonna have, we're gonna start with two episodes, uh, one sort of a um, scholarly episode, one more of a pastorly episode, uh, two interviews, one with Tim Gombas, that's the episode today, and then one with Joshua Ryan Butler, uh, that'll be next episode. Um, and, uh, and I'll introduce him when we get there, but he's fantastic. Um, and we're going to take a similar set of questions to each and just get uh, get their thoughts on that. And then uh, Tim and I will do some stuff um, kind of on our end because I know you're all dying you know, to hear what Tim and I think about this. So uh, that's kind of the, the frame of the next several episodes. How can we not start with Gombas? <laughs> I think there is the uh, fourth law of thermodynamics, okay. which is... I'm in. You're in? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Seth is in for the fourth law of thermodynamics. And that fourth law is the more gombus, the better. <laughs> I'm in too. So, so we're in for that. So anyway, um, here is Dr. Tim Gombus alongside Dr. Timothy Stafford alongside of non-doctor Michael Leary. Yeah. This this not a doctor. Yeah, definitely not a doctor, huh? Just just Charles and Bob. Yeah, just Charles and Bob. Absolutely, just Charles and Bob. So here you go. No introduction of a series would be complete without our dear friend Timothy Gombas, and we are going to start a, a series of conversations on the Bible. And so, Tim, thank you. We don't, you know, we didn't have to teleport you in today, so we're grateful for that. We know that's really great. I, I've summer, had, yeah. there's a, there's effects of that. <laughs> I get a rash every time. It's just, you know, there's not enough ointment in the world. <laughs> the story, a this, rash. A tra- yeah, exactly. Exactly. What, what kind of rash did you think it was, Timothy? Transmogrifier um, one. Uh, so, so Dr. Gombas, thank you. If you are new to our podcast, man, I don't even know how to catch you up with our relationship with this gentleman. He is incredible and uh, a dear friend to us and great resource. And so, um, we want to talk a little bit about the Bible and, um, we were just talking off air, uh, Tim, you were talking about how many conversations you have with people where the Bible has moved from kind of a source of encouragement to a source of stumbling, like almost the, 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 the hurdle that we have to get over in order to approach Jesus. Um, I'd love for you to talk just a little bit, a bit more about that 
and why do you think that is? Well, I don't know why it is. Hopefully that'll be something that you guys answer, but the, (laughs) that's why the scholars are here. Mm, There's uh, one. The, uh, you know, there's old ones that are like, uh, an inability to reconcile the old Testament to the new Testament. Right. So, um, an angry God who allows, um, violence and the murder of children. And not only that, but seems to ordain it or, you know, whatever with a Jesus of love and whatever. So that's, you know, that's always been one that people have said, I just can't make that connection. Yeah. I can't understand, uh, how this, how these two things fit together and how this entity exists in these two boldly different ways. Um, I think one of the biggest ones lately that's come up in conversation is just that is this idea of, uh, you know, inerrancy or errancy with, within, um, you know, a, there's either a camp that's like, you cannot challenge anything. You read everything as it sits and stands. And, uh, the Bible is the Bible. And if you, you know, that's just it period. And then we started getting into context of, um, you know, this is what so-and-so is who so-and-so was speaking to and why, and this is the context of the time period and the, the genre of the book and, and, uh, this translation mistranslated this word or this translation doesn't quite capture this kind of thing. And to the layman, it's like, well, what in the world am I supposed to do if I don't have the, yeah the know-how, the anything to approach something that takes that much research and knowledge to understand whatever God is actually trying to say. And people feel kind of like, you know, just a spinning top that can't quite, you know, and if this is the way, one, you know, one of the primary ways that maybe God speaks to us or gives us insight into the universe or whatever, they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with that if I can't even find a, a way in to approach it? Yeah. You know? So lately I think that's been one of the bigger ones is just context and translation. And, um, we got a few questions about that. Just like, what's the best translation and why, and how do I trust this? And how would I even know to trust this? And, uh, how would I know to trust the men that sat in a circle and put all this together? And, you know, it delineates out from there. Yeah. So, um, so Tim Gumbus, um, you know, at least I was raised in an environment where it was literally the Bible says it and that settles it. Um, uh, there was no critical approach at all to the text to now, you know, whether, whether it's a pendulum or not, we sort of swung to, to distrust everything. Uh, how can we trust anything that we're reading? Um, so when you talk, you I, I know you teach a class on interpretation. Um, what? Uh, how do you how do you bring people into this strange literary world? Like where where should we start before we get to some of the specific questions? How do we approach this this book? Um, in what ways is it unique, and in what ways is it just like we'd read anything else? Yeah, these are significant questions and challenges. Um, man, a lot of thoughts on on all of that. Uh, first of all, this is part part of the challenge uh, of being Protestant or being non-Roman Catholic. Uh, that is, um, you know, if you're not Roman Catholic, um, there's not like a teaching hierarchy. There's not a t- teaching magisterium. So to be especially evangelical or any kind of Protestant uh, in that tradition, um, you're in an environment where the Bible is sort of set loose from any kind of interpretive framework. And it's just basically, um, you know, whatever your pastor has said for years or whatever your denomination has said. And, and that's, um, and, and all of us, I think it's just human to want an authority and to want someone to say clearly, this is what it says. And this is how we do it. And I grew up in a similar context where it's like, you know, the boundaries are clear. Um, what the Bible said was clear. And, um, you know, we didn't question it. Um, but I mean, I've gone through that process of um, coming to understand that what's going on in scripture. 
scripture is far more complex than the simple, straightforward boundary marking way of reading the Bible that I grew up with. And that's really unsettling. It's destabilizing to find out that like in your imaginative world or in your imagination, all these secure mooring points that kind of held you together and held you held together how you see yourself and God and being Christian to find out that those were culturally shaped or were just basically decided by the leadership of your church is really unsettling. I totally get that. Um, so we talk in, in our class on hermeneutics, we talk about the challenge of being Protestant. This mm -hmm. it's a real, it's, it's not, um, we have to recognize that. Um, secondly, the big thing that Jonathan and I talk about my colleague with whom I teach that class, he teaches old Testament stuff. Um, we invite students to really get ready for how unsettling it is to have, especially if you have a relationship with the Bible over decades, to have the Bible made strange, because that really needs to happen. Mm -hmm. The Bible is not this familiar book. It's an ancient text. It's a collection of ancient texts that has to become strange. But we always reassure everybody, um, and this, this can't be, uh, as Tim knows, this is a place that has to be believed to be seen. Mm -hmm. um, you sort. This is what you, that's a U2 reference. Yeah, the, no, uh, I, I understand. This is something that you have to sort of take on by faith <laughs> and, and sort of have to understand from, I mean, this is just my experience, um, that after when the Bible starts to become strange and then you get to know it again, um, the clarity of the gospel, or, or I should say the beauty of the gospel is far richer and better and more profound than I thought beforehand. And God is better. He's actually more mysterious and hard to get your head around but he's way better and more gracious than I thought beforehand. Mm -hmm. So you, you kind of, we invite students to kind of go in with the confidence, like let this text become a little bit strange because when you start to get to know it, it's going to be better than you thought. Mm -hmm. And um, so the way that we teach is, is not like a faith buster approach. Like you thought the Bible said this, ha ha ha. It says nothing <laughs> like that. It's more of um, this is, this is better than you think. Uh, it's richer than you think. It's stranger than you think, more challenging than you think. Um, and let's go through this together and you're going to be okay. Um, so I think it takes a real confidence in the love of God and in the, the passion of God to hold on to his people. Uh, we don't hold on to God through the clarity of our understanding. I mean, God is holding us uh, by the power of the spirit in Christ. That's what the reality. And so we're actually freed up to kind of, um, sort of wander into that strange new world of the Bible. It's like, uh, the way that I imagine it, it's like sort of, um, my previous understanding of the Bible and theology and being Christian and God and how all that relates to life. Um, it's sort of like, I didn't realize that I was taken on a trip to Yellowstone, but had spent my whole time in the gift shop mm. looking at the pictures. And now I've actually left the tour and I'm going out and wandering through this insanely beautiful place on my own. Um, you know, and even if we imagine with a group of people, it's like the difference between, you know, leaving the visitor center and actually going into the park. Mm. It's going to take a while. You don't, you don't do Yellowstone, you know, in yeah. one day, it yeah. takes a while to learn things. And then there are levels of learning, there are levels of understanding, and there are vistas that are awe-inspiring. And, you know, there's some dangerous parts and parts that you need to keep your eyes open for. Um, but that's, I don't know, that's an analogy I try to use and think about. Right. It's, it's a lot safer. Make, everything makes sense in the visitor center. Yeah. If you're in the <laughs> gift shop staring at posters, it's awesome, but it's like, it's very safe. And you're not really there. You're not really living. But when you get out into the national park, it's like, wow, this is incredible. Why do you think God gifted us with such a strange work? I mean, one of the laments I hear sometimes is, you know, if God really wanted to make this clear, uh, this was his divine word to human beings. Why do we have to do so much work yeah. to understand it? Why, is it? why doesn't it just make sense sort of on the face of it? Well, in one sense, God spoke very clearly, and there's no work involved at all. Um, when God, uh, 
you know, when God spoke through Moses to the Israelites, everything made perfect sense. They understood exactly what he was saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and when God, when, when Moses is telling these stories um, to the Israelites about who they are and what their history is, they all got it. You know, our father was a wandering Aramean and uh, God brought up our people from Egypt. Oh yeah. We, those are the stories they grew up with and it all made sense. And um, you know, when he talked through the genealogies and all of that, nothing is unclear, nothing at all. Um, but you and I are, you know, when Ezekiel is speaking to the Israelites, the disobedient people of God, and he's talking all these ways that we don't understand all that made sense. They Mm. totally got it. But when I'm reading these texts that are 3000 years old, and I don't read many texts that are 3000 years old, (laughs) it's like, whoa, what is that about? You know, uh, I don't understand that turn of phrase. I mean, it's it's strange to us when Paul uh, writes these letters to churches in the first century uh, to a bunch of illiterate people. It all made sense, and they got it. They understood what he was saying, and when he told them what to do and um, how he wanted them to be treating each other, they all got it. But it's because we're reading these two thousand year old texts, we have to do the work. Um, to try to get ourselves into that frame of mind. What's it like to be an illiterate, um, you know, shopkeeper uh, who can scratch mm-hmm. out receipts, but can't read or write and has to gather with a bunch of, you know, 25 other people to hear these passages that are very clear. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to get ourselves into that place. Yeah. So God speaks a timely word to his people um, in ways that are culturally appropriate that completely make sense that are very plain spoken it's a clear word but my goodness especially here in the states we are worlds away from those contexts historically literarily imaginatively and it's possible to get there like we can we can understand things uh, but it just takes a little bit of work and patience yeah takes time we got we got lots of questions about, I mean, and this is sort of uh, uh, this is uh, typical of the kind of questions. How am I how am I supposed to study historical cultural context without going to seminary? <laughs> First and Second Corinthians are very confusing to me and freak me out, especially the stuff about women. I don't have enough uh, reliable tools, or, or people just sort of say once it becomes strange again, right? Which is a gift. It, it almost seems daunting how to then make it unstrange again, because, yeah. um, you know, if we're sitting in class with you, that's one thing, but if we're just sort of sitting on our own and when all we've been raised with is, well, what does this verse mean to me? And we realize, oh, that's really deficient. Um, how do we, how, how do we take steps towards unstranging the text? Yeah. Well, you have to contact Grand Rapids Theological Seminary and take one of their classes. <laughs> you have to go to seminary. No, you totally do not. Uh, yeah, a couple of things about that. First of all, um, be really patient. Be really patient. It takes a little time, but you, mm. you, you can get there. Secondly, uh, I think it's important to realize that as far as the New Testament goes, um, some of these new testament letters well the new testament letters are written to very specific situations that you that we have a hard time reconstructing those actual scenarios yeah so um i feel how daunting that is when it comes to like hebrews or certain passages in first corinthians i told you i'm right there um and so even seminary doesn't solve it is what is, a, is a we, we can we, we discover a lot of tools there's a lot of good tools to use um i mean one i've mentioned this in a lot of other places but one great book to get into the broad imaginative world of the new testament is the lost letters of pergamum which is such a great book but um when you read very very specific letters like uh we're reading other people's mail when we read messages from Paul to the churches or from any of the apostles to the churches. So there's some things we'll get, some things we may not. Um, And I think we, I think it's also very, because of that, I think we have to be very hesitant and very very hesitant to make any hard and fast rules about gender differences based on texts Mm -hmm. that are not terribly clear. They look clear, um, but upon closer inspection, they're actually very likely talking about some 
situation that's up and running in the local places. And I think there needs to be, um, and this is huge for evangelicals, because evangelicals over the last hundred years have, because it's been largely a white culture based on like um, where all theology is kind of cognitive, mm-hmm. evangelical culture has centered Paul. And um, sort of Paul is our guy. He's the one that kind of says it. He's the one that was clear. And I think that's a complete misconception. And I think that that has to be really reevaluated. And I would encourage people, center the Gospels. Like these are narratives that are far easier to get. Not absolutely easier to get, um, but spend time in the Gospels. Those should be the center of how we understand really the entire Scripture and uh, the New Testament narratives are more accessible yeah um and i think it 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 just takes some time it takes time like one of the things i think oh because of that i think we should be relatively slow um to apply the bible to our lives Mm -hmm. i i think that 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 has been an unhelpful notion um because it's left us with this sense that what i should be able to do is take 15 minutes in the morning and read a passage and I should, I should feel something. I should have some kind of like warmth or some devotional buzz from that. And <laughs> like, and, and I should have a principle to be able to apply to my life today. And if I, totally. and if I don't, I'm doing it wrong. Right. But Cause that's like, what it's for. Yeah. It's supposed to give me, it's like, it's the Bible is more or less one of those deep thoughts calendars. You know, you sort of like open it up. It shouldn't take long. You get your jolt of Jesus. And like, here I go. I think, I mean, what I would tell people to do is take a gospel and take like six weeks or maybe two months and just read it, like read five chapters a day and read it through and then read it again and read it again. And do don't think about applying anything to your life. Just, read it continuously, like in the NIV and, um, and sort of get to know it as you're going to get to know a person over two months. Just, just give it some time. Think about it. Um, have a journal next to you and write down questions and see if upon repeated readings of the text, things start to become clear or like, what are some things that you notice? And I think that what happens over time when you take that sort of approach is that, um, your imagination starts to be kind of shaped by the gospel of John. You start to, mm. you start to unconsciously have a gospel of John imagination mm-hmm. so that the way you see yourself and God and Jesus and other people starts to just sort of take the shape of John. Um, and then it's like, you're not even trying to find a principle to apply it to your life, but you're just thinking in terms of how John sees things and what is, what are the sorts of things that Jesus hits in John and what are the sorts of assurances he gives and what are the sorts of promises he makes and what are the sorts of challenges that he makes to us. And those are the things that, um, you know, in the, in the spare moments when you're on an elevator or when you're parking your car or when you're making breakfast, like your mind tends to kind of gravitate toward the thing that you're spending most of your mind time in. And it's just like phrases from John will come to mind. And, um, you know, that person that's bugging you at work, that's like, wow, I can't believe this guy. Yeah. But Jesus says, and it's like, this is the way that your mind starts to work. So instead of like just a quick, you know, parachute in for 15 minutes and read three verses and expect to be hit by something, that's not how I work. I I mean, I, I tried that approach for years and it just, it worked about once every six weeks, but it's like, that's just, I don't know. I think it's a bad way to approach the text and now and then one of the other benefits of that is you start to get a um, a broad sort of sense of what John is about and instead of like those um, inevitably you come across a statement that Jesus makes that's like what in the world <laughs> but when you have when you have the larger picture um, that starts to be set within a larger maybe discourse that Jesus gives, that does make sense. So yeah, you didn't understand that one phrase. What the heck does he mean by that? Well, I'm not sure, but in this larger talk that he gives, he's hitting these emphases and I get those. And those can be things that you write down and inevitably you have questions about the text. See if you can answer mine your own over time, uh, or maybe pick up one or two books on John that um, might give you some clues as to what, what Jesus is saying. So I think it takes patience 
and time with the text to let it work on you. And then patience to sort of resist the urgency to think I've got to, I have to do something today based on these two verses. Right. Right. It's unrealistic. Totally. And and I think you raised such a great point. Uh, One of the questions we got is what role is the Bible supposed to play in our lives and to what extent? And so I, I always used to go to the Bible for information, right? To settle debates um about doctrinal issues or application okay so i don't know how to act in this situation but what you're saying and in and there's a concept in science fiction so i love to read science fiction to kind of relax my brain and uh, they have a concept called world building where an author shows you the inner logic of the world like how the systems of magic would work or um, how the social classes relate and, and that imaginative world that you, you get into has become, for me, a picture of what the Bible is doing. It's totally. world building. It's like refurbishing Huge. imagination. So I don't go to it for information or application anymore. I go for it for imagination. I want to see the world the way Jesus saw his world. Yes, totally. That's, that's exactly what the Bible is doing. It is world building. There's a, yeah, there's, that's a big term in New Testament scholarship. And of course, it's in German because we, we have to look like we're sophisticated. But that is exactly Say the German. what What's the German doing. word? What's the oh, German geez. word? Is no, it, that's okay. If you didn't know. That's fine. Bildung or something like that? Of course. But that is, um, that's exactly what the Bible is doing. And so like, what, how, to what extent would you, if you picked up a science fiction novel and you read half of a paragraph... How effective would that be? You would never do that. No. You've got to, you have to take, you have to sort of give yourself, all right, in a week or two weeks well, look, or Lord if, of the if Rings. You're a slow reader like me. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Nobody reads, you don't dip into that to read a paragraph. You give yourself weeks to read it to really absorb the world that it creates. Yes. And so Ooh, in, the go- in the Bible, in the Gospels especially, uh, the, the Gospel writers are constructing worlds and the world they're constructing is called the kingdom of God. And it mm. to do that. They need parables and they need teaching and they need um, s- striking, mystifying events that Jesus does because this new world that we are called to inhabit is different from this world. And so it's like, there's a sense in which I try to encourage people measure your acquisition of sort of Bible knowledge over five and 10 year increments that does not happen overnight. So that's why I say spend long stretches of time in narratives and let, let the way that John constructs the new world that God calls us into let, let that happen over time Mm -hmm. because it, it takes time to have our imaginations reoriented. I think it's also a good question that everybody should ask themselves, um, about like what sources, um, have built the world of my imagination. Is mm. it a is it a cable news channel? Is it um, how my inherited culture told me to see things? I mean, who do I imagine are the safe people? Who are the dangerous people? Uh, what do I imagine will happen that's promising? What do I imagine will happen that's terrible? Um, that's and then you can trace back to like you know the sources of what is constructing your world. Yeah, and it yeah. should be scripture so that we don't see people as enemies and so that we we don't see the inevitable collapse of our nation as terribly uh, devastating. I mean, if we're kingdom inhabitants and we're in- inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken, there's just nothing bad that can happen to us. Yeah, yeah, Jane, yes. Uh, which raises... Um, if we're inhabiting the English text, we, we've got several people just writing in about the, how, how um, uh, disorienting it is to hear that translate, not all translations are the same. Yeah. And that, and that um, the translations might not give us the full context or, or, you know, we'll often talk about how, well, there's actually a better way to translate that, the, you know, this particular word or instance or whatever. And it's very disorienting um, for people. So, so two parts to this one. Um, what, uh, especially they, uh, one individual was reading the uh, making of biblical womanhood, and you know, just yeah. talking about how the ESV is constructed uh, and with a very concrete, you know, theological direction. Um, so, what translations do you recommend and use? And then, how can we have confidence in any? 
of the translations? Uh, the translations that I use are the, I use two, I use the NASB update or the 95 update. I don't know. I have not kept up on what recent moves are that they've made. And I use the, the latest NIV and, and the, those have two different, uh, translation philosophies. The NASB, um, quote unquote is very literal. They, um, there's a lot that they keep in, um, well, it's, it's just sort of more woodenly literal to Hebrew and to Greek and the NIV so that it gives word for word, the NIV sort of translates phrase by phrase. And, um, they try to match the thought of the Hebrew and Greek texts to the thought of English. Hmm. And, um, I think that both of those translation philosophies have loads of merit. And so I, I like to consult both of those and, and read both of those. Um, I have to say, uh, well, two thoughts about that. First of all, um, I think Beth Eisenbar's book is just really powerful. And I think a lot of her stuff on the ESV is really, is dead on. I, I, if you have an ESV, I don't want to undermine your confidence in it, but I also, I'm not crazy about how they went about their work. Um, uh, I, my feelings are stronger than that, but I just don't want to, I don't, I don't want to undermine people's confidence in their Bibles that they use. Um, what I would want to be very cautious of, and, and I think is dangerous, is when people construct hard and fast rules for church communities based on like this half verse. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's like a certain reading of Paul in this text, which is difficult to understand, is the reason why women can't teach or something like that. Yeah. Um, I think that that's really a bad approach to scripture. Mm. Um, and and secondly. Um, the way to really get into, uh, I, I think we can have a ton of confidence in our translations, like the NIV, like the NASB, like the CEB, which is a really interesting one. Um, we can have so, a lot of confidence in those because these are these are really good Bible scholars that have just really uh, given themselves, especially the NIV. Like they've just they've given themselves to really putting God's word in people's hands. And when you take a broad approach, say like chapter by chapter when you take a broad approach to understanding um, you do get the basic sketch of what God wants from his people. You just do. And inevitably there's this sentence that's mystifying, but if you're building community life on that sentence, that's mystifying with, with, while ignoring the chapter that you're reading, that's just a bad way of thinking about being Christian. Mm. So um, I think I, I have a lot of confidence in our translations and they're uh, so if you had like, say the most recent NIV um, and you're reading, you're keeping in mind that say Philippians, for example, Philippians is one message. Four chapters are designed to be one message to the church. So if you break it down into like two verse chunks and expect to quote unquote, get something out of it, mm -hmm. that's not a great way of reading it. But if you read Philippians and NIV and um, say like once a day for two weeks, and then you sort of sit down and you think, what does Paul want this community to know, uh, to do? How does, how does Paul want this community to see each other? You could write a, a short essay on that and get it. Like you just got Philippians. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah. I think English trans the English translations that we have, I think are um, even the ESV by and large taken in big chunks. They're reliable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, no, you know, no. Yeah. With, with, with the, and, and it, it is those, at those points of difficulty where the differences really are made manifest. And you realize it is a difference of method. Um, it's not just, a, you know, a bunch of old guys sitting in a room. Um, there's, there's a way to adjudicate between all of the different options and so on. Yeah. And, the, and disputes are about this verse or that verse. They're not about like this whole chapter we got wrong or, right. you know, you know, but if you read large chunks of text, you, you get the thrust of what God wants his people to know. How should the Bible exercise authority over us? Um, obviously, there's a lot of suspicion these days, and, and, it, and the Bible has been deconstructed enough so that even folks that aren't terribly familiar with it would, you know, say, you know, I'm not sure it's trustworthy or... Um, and, and if you take away, you know, inerrancy as the consuming paradigm for understanding this thing. Um, in what way does it exercise authority or should it exercise authority over us? Um, 
I'm not sure that authority is the best frame for thinking about the Bible. Good. Um, good, good, good. I, yeah, I've, I've been far more skeptical about the character and all the talk about authority uh, more recently because I just don't know where it's going or what, what the deal is with it. Um, I mean, I imagine being Christian as inhabiting the kingdom of God under, under the authority, the life-giving reign of the Lord Jesus, who's God's authorized agent of ruling. And he's a, he's a Lord that is identified by the cross. So his reign is characterized by um, self-giving love. And um, I think scripture is something more like, if, it, if it's world building, and if it's imagination shaping, then it seems to me that uh, while recognizing the diversity of texts that are in it, it's God's authorized um, way of seeing the world. Mm. But it, it, it's, um, so it's not like it's authoritative. It's, it shows me, that it, it, it opens up the world to me. It opens up the world. I guess that that's how I would say it. Yeah. Tim, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's just, I mean, Tom Wright, I think was the first one to sort of shake up my thinking on this when he wrote that essay about how, yeah. you know, how the Bible yeah. is authoritative because it seems like he shifted things around a little bit to say, uh, you know, when he talked about that five act play yeah. and one of them's missing, I think that's a great way of seeing things. It's like when you're, when you're told sort of who you are um, and how the world is, and uh, how wonderful it is to be alive in God's good world. Um, it's, it's a, authority just doesn't capture that. Like if you, we have a collection of texts that are history, poetry, uh, prophetic speech, stories, uh, letters to churches. Um, does authority really capture what that collection of texts is? I'm not sure it does. I think it's mm -hmm. it's bigger and deeper and wider than that. Mm -hmm. But Tim uh, Stafford, I saw you grinning. You want to you want to chime in on that point? Well, I was going to ask that question because I think so. I'm trying to put little pins in things for uh, as I'm trying to listen to this as I would listen to it with a group of friends who are questioning all this. So. Um, world building, I think world building for me makes a lot of sense because I live in English and in literature and as a writer, when I go to my writer's group with a story and they're like, Hey, this is really interesting. But if you don't understand the rules of your world, um, there, you have zero chance of your reader understanding the rules of your world. So the idea of world building and understand the rules of the world in which you are inhabiting, I think is a really, that's a really interesting way to look at that. And to, I think that's a, I think that's a helpful tool. The idea of patience is not, that's not an American trait, patience. <laughs> um, and I think that that gets worse and worse as the world spins quicker and quicker. And, you know, as we have all news and all information at our fingertips at all times, it's difficult for us to be patient with anything. Like we are, a, we are a now people. Yeah. Um, so inhabiting that idea of being able to sit with something it feels like a no brainer, right? It feels like a very like, Oh, obviously if I want to understand something this big that I claim, uh, is ha has insight into the universe, I would be patient with that. I would sit with that. I would, I would marinate in that and kind of digest that on a larger scale. So I think the idea of world building, the idea of being really patient with the narrative texts. I, and I think that's key too. As you just ran through, I, I was going to ask you to do this anyway, if you're willing, because I think it's helpful for people when they hear the Bible broken into those different um, literary categories, like understanding that, that which sections are narrative, which ones are poetry, which ones are letters and what the intent is with, or not the intent, but the, if you, if you do a quick run through for us, and I think it'd be interesting of, of from Genesis to revelation, kind of the cat literary categories of those things and how, in just a really loose way, how one would approach a literary genre of poetry as scripture and then a literary genre as narrative, if that makes sense. Like, because obviously if I pick up a book of poetry, I'm going to 
personally, when I sit down, I know I'm opening up, you know, T.S. Eliot. I know how I'm going to approach T.S. Eliot purposefully because I'm going to be immersing myself into the poetic language that Eliot and what he's trying to do with that. If I pick up an, a, a biography on um, Mother Teresa, I know how I'm going to enter into a, a biographical written thing and so on and so forth. Like I will go with intent. I will put on the glasses of that particular genre to approach it. So could you run through, cause I do think that a lot of people are still just kind of like, I have a book and I'm going to open it and I'm going to <laughs> apply it. And then I'm going to be confused. And that was rambling. Yeah. But does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. This is, I think that uh, sensitivity to genre is the biggest deal in this is what we spend the semester half the semester doing in biblical interpretation because it's it's such a big deal to understand that this is not one book it's a collection of texts written over over a thousand years that that operate and function very differently they mean differently mm -hmm. and so that that's got to be regarded so yeah i could i'll try to do that really fast uh Genesis 1 to 11 is like epic history. Um, it's, and it's constructed poetically. So um, modern Bible readers who are very um, ready for like a scientific history of the world, um, set that aside. Genesis 1 to 11 is um, sort of uh, the founding, I'll just use the term, the founding myth for for how israel should understand what the world is and i'm not i'm not saying myth in the sense of not true right but it's it's the story or um i definitely mean true um it's it's the story of how israel should look at the world and what the world is and who god is as creator and um uh that it's a text that just functions differently than sort of straightforward history as we might expect but genesis 1 to 11 is a very unique genre Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis is basically the story of um, it's, it's also part of the founding reality of Israel where God makes promises to Abraham and how he's faithful to that all the way through to Joseph. So Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis have to be understood as sort of a single story of, of Israel's uh, family. That's their history yeah. in the history of the God of Israel working with Abraham. Uh, Exodus is a story of deliverance. It's it basically that's that's Israel's history. Um, just Leviticus, uh, the first five books of the Bible are the books of Moses. That's that's the it's Torah. It's instruction for how Israel should understand itself. And you've got um, you know sort of uh, the cultic practices and the sacrificial practices for Israel. And by cultic, I just mean you know ritual. Um, and uh, you mentioned earlier, Tim, about people thinking that God, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. Honestly, just read the Old Testament. That, that will be dispelled quickly. Um, I, I had this understanding that in college I read for about a month, I read Deuteronomy just straight through just repeatedly. And it is, it's mind blowing um, how, how much God is a God of concrete love and he wants his people to be a God, a people of love. Um, so Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are the history of Israel, the story of who they are. Then you've got the historical books, um, you know, uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, etc. These are stories that sort of orient uh, how Israel should understand itself and their disobedience to God and their, their struggle to just figure out themselves and um, what it means to be God's people in the world. Um, and, of course, these historical books are... Um, they are written with sort of, a, they're written as, as divine propaganda in a sense. Historical works in the ancient world are all propaganda for the king and make him look good. Uh, the historical works of Israel make basically all the humans in the story look not so great. And, <laughs> um, but they're designed to basically tell the story of God's faithfulness uh, to his covenant promises to Israel. Um, and so they're written with an agenda uh, to portray that. They're not like quote unquote straightforward history, just as modern history is actually not straightforward history. Um, they're written with that intention. Then you've got the poetic books, the Psalms, which I, uh, the, one of the ways I think about those are the collection of God's authorized emotional responses to life. 
And so you've got lament there. You've got questioning, you've got struggling and wrestling and celebrating and praising. And um, uh, so the Psalms need to be understood like poetry is understood. Um, what I think is interesting about the wisdom literature, you know, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, um, and Job is that uh, wisdom in the world and the world itself is very complex. Um, in Proverbs, you get these very sort of straightforward rules, work hard, you'll do well, obey God, things will go well. Right. Do you have a lot of money? Well, you're obviously blessed by God. Everything is super straightforward. And then Ecclesiastes and Job are written to basically show, uh, remember all those rules? Well, they don't really work in, in this um, messed up world where things are just not working the way that they should. Mm -hmm. And Job is there to kind of help us to see um, this world, there's more going on. And you could follow straightforward wisdom and still have it not work out. What in the world? Um, so with the wisdom literature uh, has to be taken. We have to read the Proverbs for how they are uh, intended to mean. These are general rules that sometimes don't always apply, but they're yeah. sort of general approaches to life. And then there's counter wisdom with Ecclesiastes and Job. You've got erotic literature with the Song of Solomon. Hold on um, a second. That's just a Edwards. metaphor for God's love. <laughs> so, uh, ancient Jews and, and Christians throughout the centuries have tried to make Song of Solomon something other than it is. But I mean, I, this is obviously God's celebration of uh, romantic love, and um, and uh, which is really interesting. And also, I'm not an expert in ancient poetry, so some of the stuff's like whoa, but also like. Eh. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> But then you got the prophetic literature, which is God's, I mean, the prophets are, um, have to be understood for how they are intended to mean. These are people who are outsiders to um, sort of the establishments and the, um, the structures and the institutions of Old Testament Israel. Uh, people don't like it when they come around. Um, they probably wrote a lot of their prophecies to music. Um, playing ancient instruments, and so these are these are actual uh, ancient rock stars. These are these are this is the first iteration of punk. Uh, people showing up, uh, very impolite, doing things that disrupt polite society because God is trying to arrest His people's attention and trying to call them back to faithfulness to Him. And so, the prophets are just these wild and woolly characters that were a threat to the power holders of institutions like Jeremiah. I mean, treated badly Ezekiel, like what in the world is he doing? I mean, he, you know, um, you know, stripping naked, lying inside, cutting his hair and throwing it in the wind. I mean, the, you know, think about outsiders who just don't make any sense to the polite establishment. Actually, uh, my friend Scott Calhoun did an interview with Eugene Peterson about U2 that used to be on the at U2 website where he talks about U2 as prophetic characters and compares them to the Old Testament prophets, which is really interesting. Then you got the Gospels, which are, you know, New Testament narrative and follow the narrative rules of the Old Testament. Um, those have to be understood according to how narratives work, how narrators construct um, plots and characters. Um, and then these letters are, uh, and, and the Gospels are written for everybody. This is how we get to know God and what, uh, how Jesus relates to the God of Israel and how um, God is calling his people to live. Those are the broadest understanding of how we get to know God. And the letters are male directing specific situations and how those can be set right or when people need to be encouraged in the case of, say, Philippians or maybe Colossians. And those are the those are not the clearest parts of the New Testament. Those are the most mystifying parts apart from Revelation. So I think we've, again, we have to reorient how we see those things. And there are going to be some things that, um, that we don't necessarily understand. And I try to, like I, um, if you heard, if you overheard a conversation while you're walking by that really struck you as odd um, and you try to reconstruct a scenario behind it without really right. knowing the people that that's what we're doing when we read these new Testament letters, hmm. some stuff is not easy to grasp. And even the situation that's lying behind Romans is still disputed, which is, I mean, we would have thought, well, we get Romans. So, uh, we have to be a little bit more careful when we read Romans. And then finally you've got revelation, which is apocalypse, Woo! all kinds of wild stuff going on. 
and um that's for westerners that's you know we should be very wary of people constructing big systems of theology based on understandings of revelation because that's that's a really difficult text to to, to interpret but anyway these are a varieties of genres that all have their own ways of meaning and with each of them even if you don't know the rules of how genres work take take just one text and spend a month in it and just soak it in um the way literature does work is you know we have the intuitive capacity to grasp what's happening in a text um if we spend time with it even if we don't know all the quote-unquote rules like we'll get it so again just spend some time in one um one one particular sort of subgenre um that i'd love your thoughts on is law um because we, we read all of the commands in the Old Testament and, and take similar approaches to those in the New uh, as burdensome, onerous, joyless. Um, there's something wrong uh, there. Yeah. And I'd, love, I'd love if you could comment, because uh, you've threatened on your podcast to take some time to talk about law. Um, I thought, hey, uh, I'd love for you to spend a little time on what, what the purpose of law was. and uh, how we misunderstand it yeah so it's really unfortunate that we have the english word law because of the associations that we make because when god when god gave it to them he gave them torah and um which is instruction and think about the think about the sequence god liberates a slave people gives them land delivers them from this powerful empire um gives them this land that is that is rich and then gives them instruction in how to enjoy their liberated status that's what this is it's torah but torah gets translated into namas in greek in the first century then gets translated into lex in latin and then comes to us as law which is really bad and Mm -hmm. commands and demands and harsh penalties and so our modern conception of what this is is shaped by how this language went up into Europe, you know, and theology is developed by a bunch of 15th and 16th century Dutch lawyers. And then it comes over to America as all this legal stuff. And all of those worldview accretions distort the great and insanely amazing gift that God gave to Israel. So um, we misunderstand things. If we think that God gave to Israel, this onerous, heavy, burdensome thing, he gave them this gift. It's a wonderful gift. And um, it is for Israel, it is everything to them. It's their history. It's their constitution. It's their geography. Um, it's their economy. It's their politics. It's their social practices and everything. It's their, it's, it creates an ethnicity, basically. And think about the wonderful calendar that they have. They've got all these festivals. And then um, every seven years, they take a year off to party. And then every 49th and 50th years, they take two years off to party. I mean, that's their calendar. So it's, <laughs> I mean, if you think that's burdensome and onerous, I mean, I, I would go for something like that. Um, <laughs> and then um, in, in looking at law codes in the ancient world, um, law codes were, were written to basically reflect the character of what the king cared about. Yes. The king, the king really yes. cares about this. So, so the quote unquote penalty would be like death. Um, the king doesn't really care about this, which, you know, the penalty would be relatively lenient. And one of the things that you find is interesting in the Old Testament is so seldom are any of these penalties ever assessed. And how it is that Moses um, appointed judges because Mm -hmm. cases require interpretation. And they're not just sort of like the straightforward application of, you know, so-and-so did this. Well, obviously the penalty is this. The penalty would be sort of listed as an indication if someone does this that's severe mm-hmm. someone does this that's less severe so that has to be kept in mind these were not meant to be sort of automatically applied and then also a lot of the laws are suggestive they're not mm-hmm. they're not like uh yeah we just misunderstand i mean everybody had flat roofs and if you were going to hang out in the evening you went up on the roof so if you love your neighbor, build a railing around your roof because you know, you're having the kids over and everybody's having a blast. You don't want someone falling off your roof. That's what it looks like to love. But 
you know, say you built a house where you never had any intentions of having evening cookouts on the roof. Well, why would you build a railing? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what's the point? Are you disobeying Torah if you do that? No, because that's your intention is not to do that. Mm. So if God, I mean, that, Jesus quotes Leviticus when um, he says, love your neighbor as yourself, because that's God's intention. So if people are doing that, um, you know, the law is kind of suggestive for a bunch of ways to basically love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I think it's really unfortunate that we have that negative understanding of, of the law or of Torah. Um, but it's, I think it's a modern, mis a lot of modern misconceptions have to kind of go by the wayside for us to understand the law code uh, properly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim, is there anything you want to add to that and to the epic tour through the entire Bible that uh, Mr. Gombus just took us on? No, I, I hope that's helpful because I think it is having a loose understanding of how genre works. I mean, that's just not something that in my experience we grew up with. So people would pull, like you talk about the danger of pulling one verse and kind of you know, every church has its, uh, creed or its, uh, you know, mission statement that always has one verse that kind of says something that they think is important towards whatever their, they think their mission is. But even in Sunday school or uh, youth group or whatever, it's still pulling individual verses, but then to pull them out of different genres of literature and, you know, hang them as ornaments on one tree. It just is, it, it confuses the hell out of a kid and then those kids grow into adults and they're carrying a weird knapsack of confusing ideas that they as adults think they should have a i'm an adult i should have a i'm an adult christian i've been a christian my whole life i should have an understanding of this knapsack of really loose ends that i'm told is a coherent faith if that makes mm -hmm. sense like and then, but really what it is, is it's a knapsack of all these random things that have come from different people over the years. And to the, I understand that laying that knapsack on the ground, opening it up and saying, I'm going to make sense of all these odds and ends is a, can be a really like, can be a, feel like a really daunting task. Like, I don't know how to sort through 30, 40 years of misinterpreted or whatever. So I, I think that, I hope this is helpful. I think the idea of patience and world building, like I said, then how to approach things is such a good, if we can create a, you know, for lack of a better term, Genesis point for people to mm. reapproach the Bible. A nexus, a nexus point, perhaps. A nexus event. You know, what's unfortunate is when people have that, uh, that knapsack of just a variety of different verses drawn from different genres. What's unfortunate is that, um, they, their imaginative world is already built by something else. Yes. And then there's a bunch of Bible verses put into a world that scripture did not build. Yep. And that's, oh, that, that's I think so that's good. what so many, that's, oh. what, that's what many of us have inherited. You know, I, I inherited a world built by Republican values, built by American patriotism. And then there's a bunch of Bible verses kind of sprinkled into that instead totally. of having a gospel you know, a, a gospel constructed world by literally one of the four gospels or all four together, and then have a kingdom of God imagination that, that looks, that helps me to look out on everything else, you know, is right. that suggestive of a way forward when we come to things in the Bible we don't like? So it's not, it's not that it's all unclear. There are parts of it that are perfectly clear and I just can't stand it. Um, so, so, I mean, in the classic list of courses, misogyny, patriarchy, uh, sexual violence we see throughout the scripture, um, the Old Testament, um, you know, commands to genocide, um, some of, some of the, the sexual ethics in Paul. Like when we come to this sort of thing and it sort of pings us as, ooh, I don't, I'm not sure I buy that. Is it more the case or, or what, what should be the case in how I begin to wrestle through those things that I automatically sort of turn off to, that I find yeah. that the modern sensibilities that I find offended by this, you know, grouping of ancient texts. Yeah, those are that's a great question. Um, I think um, 
I think that what's really helpful for me is to see, to get a little window into how ancient Jews grappled with, with some of these difficulties. Um, they, they argued with the text. I mean, wrestled with it, just like Jacob wrestling with God. It's mm -hmm. like, uh, I think we should feel free to be mystified and maybe, and, and horrified at, um, at parts of judges and, and, and part of, part of the point of that literature is to actually horrify audiences. This is how bad things have gotten. Um, but also the, the commission for, um, you know, the annihilation of certain tribes or nations that I think we should, at least this is where I'm at. Uh, I think we should sit back a little bit and say, I don't know what to do with that. I, that's is, uh, this is, this is horrifying and shocking. Um, somehow the God revealed in Jesus and the God revealed in the old Testament is God of grace and love and longs for his creation to flourish. And I just don't get that. I don't understand it. Yeah. Um, I think that there are some hints and clues toward ways of, of reckoning with them. And I think, um, uh, other aspects of scripture that trouble us. Um, I try to take that as an opportunity to, to do some excavation of my own modern values. Are there modern values that I have that need to be actually revisited? Um, or, or, and, or are there things about the ancient text uh, that I don't yet understand? And if I, if I, if I got further light, these would make better sense. Mm -hmm. um, are some of these things, um, as I said, God spoke very clearly to his, to the original audiences. In some senses, those are audiences shaped by patriarchy. And so within that kind of context, God speaks his word. And there are some things that certain words of God confront and overturn and some things that are accommodated because, you know, that's just kind of, I don't know. That's just sort of how God ends up relating to his people. Yeah. Um, does that frame help? I mean, there's, there's, a, yeah. I think it's, I think it's important to sort of try on some different ways of thinking to reckon with stuff. But I, I think also we should be free to just be mystified, frustrated, um, you know, with these ancient texts and with where God's people were yeah. and give ourselves permission um, to be in those kind of places. I think that's all right. And that's so helpful. Uh, Tim, as we close, Tim Stafford, any last any last thoughts, my friend? No. Nope. I've got. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that is, yeah, that's his normal answer too. It's perfect. Um, so I've got good news. I'll just for the say world. that. Oh, sorry. Do it. Uh, yeah. We don't have to get God off the hook. We don't have to have clear answers to all the troubling things and just anticipating where Tim and I are going. Stop helping God across the road like a little. Oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> I just that's what, see I, what that's you what see I was, when I look at the world. <laughs> that's it, baby. I was just transitioning into two pieces of good news. The first piece is that uh, Timothy Gombas is back with the third season of Faith Improvised. His podcast. He's going to go through Romans. And so if you want That's to see right. some of the you want to be mystified. Yes. Well, but if you want to see this <laughs> approach played out in totally. real time, then this is a yeah, great totally. place to go next is to is to he just did his first episode on Romans and does a bunch of background about um, how it is that he learns and approaches the text. And this would be great to flesh this out um, and with with a text that supposedly is clear um and functions in a really sort of centered way for a lot of american christians um the second piece of good news is that uh the tims are combining forces to finally um produce the u2 podcast um where we're talking about the intersection of theology and u2 and it'll be glorious as hinted to just it's the interpretive key man the interpretive key bono <laughs> Spelled backward is Noah. Trans translated into Hebrew is Nero. And um, it's incredible. So uh, that's so the big takeaway keep... from understanding the Bible. The key to cracking all the text yeah. is YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, so anyway, Timothy Gombas, I, I, we're just eternally grateful, man, for your hey, kindness uh, to us. You're welcome. I love it. You guys are the best. 
Oh, you really are, dude. Thank you so much for, so for this. Fun. We appreciate you very much, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.